to episode 23 of the Antigen Internet Radio Show. My name is Jason and I'll be your host for tonight's roundup of the latest political sleaze, impropriety and criminal behaviour, interrupted occasionally with tunes from around the world. So hide the gin, lock up your teenage sons and whatever you do, don't uncross your legs as we head to Westminster for a bacchanalian orgy of sex, drugs and rock and roll on Southend-on-Sea's premier internet-only radio station, ship full of bombs. Trigger warning, this episode contains descriptions of conduct in public office that may be unsuitable for children or people with a sensitive disposition. We open the show with Ruli Shabara and Wuki Suryadi from Indonesia performing Tana from the album Senyawa, released in 2010 by Yes No Wave Music. Senyawa became the name under which the duo performed from that point onwards and I was lucky enough to see them at Colchester Arts Centre last month and it was one of the top 10 gigs I've witnessed in my lifetime. Senyawa Live should be an experience on everyone's bucket list, in my opinion, of which there will be a lot over the next hour and a half. Apologies for the lack of satirical content on last month's show. I gave up Johnson bashing for Lent. And Johnson bashing, it's not an Oxford Uni drinking club euphemism for masturbation, like choking the head boy or mouth-fucking the severed head of a dead pig. I was, instead, observing the Lenten practice of abstinence by foregoing, for 40 days, the pleasure I get from abusing people who hold a different political viewpoint. At least until Jacob Rees-Mogg's annual Easter announcement, which he duly made by tweeting, Christ is risen, alleluia. He is risen indeed, alleluia, alleluia. Though Mogg was the last person I expected to be banging on about that Nazarene social justice warrior, that unshaven proto-Corbanite enemy of commerce, who frankly 
proves what can happen to your empire if you let wokeness undermine the values that made it great. The Tories were full of Jesus last month, even Pretty Patel tweeted Happy Easter to her Twitter followers, forgetting, for a moment, that Jesus was a freeloading refugee who would have ended up living his best life in Central Africa if Patel had been in charge of Bethlehem's borders, instead of that liberal bedwetter, King Herod. Yeah.
Sea Lion Woman with Alleluia, recorded before I met them when they were a three-piece performing under the name Kitty in the Drowning Bag. That track first saw the light on the first Caveat Emptor compilation CD, released on Antigen Records back in 2011, according to Discogs. Um, please don't buy their album, expecting it to sound like that. Avoid buyer's remorse by listening to it first on the Antigen Records Bandcamp page. So what did we miss last month? Well, Poundland Putin, Pretty Patel's Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act 2022, received royal assent, criminalising non-violent protest in England with up to 10 years in prison for being a nuisance and introducing a 10-year sentence for pushing a statue of a Tory MP into Bristol Harbour. That's twice the maximum sentence you get for pushing a living Tory MP into a harbour. Just saying. It's all in episode 14. Reflecting on the reign of Nero, Tacitus wrote in Annals, Corruptisma re publica plurimi leges. When the state is at its most corrupt, then are the laws most multiplied. Linda Brown, writing on Twitter, had a different view. She tweeted, Brilliant news that this law has been passed. I'm one of the many millions who would not want to hold up traffic. Proving... There's nothing Tory voters love more than a bit of law and order. On the 13th of April, Boris Johnson became the first sitting Prime Minister to be criminally sanctioned for breaking the law. He was fined £50 for taking part in a gathering of two or more people indoors in the Cabinet Room on the 19th of July 2020. Conservative MPs and senior government sources were quick to forget the words in the legislation, gathering of two or more people indoors, which could have applied to seeing an elderly relative or attending a wake, and instead made up their own defence, that it wasn't what they would call a proper party. Minister of State for Northern Ireland, Connor Burns, told Channel 4 News that the Prime Minister was, in a sense, ambushed with a cake. But another source told the Daily Mail that the cake, quotes, did not even leave the Tupperware box. MP for Wellingborough, Peter Bone, told Newsnight, well, I just don't recognise that as a party. And if that's the sort of parties you go to, they're not much fun, are they? Michael Fabricant said, The way it's being characterised, you would think there were pole dancers. He went on to explain that many teachers and nurses enjoy a drink in the staff room after a shift. So maybe we should stand outside our houses on Thursday night and give Boris a clap for being a fucking hero but the award for setting the bar low for prime ministerial conduct went to Romford MP and founder of the all-party parliamentary flag group, Andrew Rosendell, who was satisfied that the PM, quotes, had not robbed a bank. I'm sure this was all welcome news to Conservative voters, like my Uncle Bob, who now realised that we could have had a wake for his wife, my Auntie Carol, if only we'd cancelled the poll dancers.
screaming. Screaming out. Hey, naked mother is the way. Screaming out. Explode upon an apple pirate toad. And if an engine ate a plate, I'd laugh into the boat. with Birthday Boy from the Duck Stab album, released in 1978 as Duck Stab slash Buster and Glenn. Peter Bone MP didn't recognise Boris Johnson's birthday bash as a party because it didn't seem like much fun, which made me wonder, what does it take to make a Tory party fun? It's clear that cake and a contemptuous disregard for the rule of law are not always enough. Thankfully, a couple of Conservative Party animals were in the news last month with some top tips for letting your hair down after a hard day in the office. Conservative MP for Somerton and Frome, David Warburton, revealed all you need for a party is booze, four lines of an unidentified white powder on an upturned baking tray and an inebriated woman who isn't your wife. The Sunday Times published a photo said to date from February of this year of Warburton posing next to a credit card and four lines of white powder, which could, obviously, be anything. The paper claimed the MP is being investigated by Parliament's Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme after allegations of sexual misconduct were made by three women, two of whom worked as parliamentary aides and have not returned to work for him following alleged incidents said to include unwanted touching and kissing. The papers were then filled with lurid allegations that Warburton had asked a third woman, whom he'd met through politics, to obtain two grams of cocaine for him. He'd then snorted, quotes, line after line after line at her London home on February the 1st, before stripping naked, climbing uninvited into her bed and grinding his naked body against her while groping her breasts. Hearing this story, most people would be feeling a bit sorry for Warburton on a personal level and Minister for Finding a Brexit Opportunity, Jacob Rees-Mogg, was on hand to express the public mood in an interview with LBC on the 4th of April. This was a sentiment shared by Daily Mail columnist Sarah Vine, ex-wife of Michael Gove, who also seems strangely unfazed by the allegations of cocaine usage. She described Warburton's behaviour as a midlife crisis. 
The Mail also ran a story quoting a senior figure in the Tory party whose view was that Warburton had been the victim of some kind of stitch-up, saying, quotes, We are working on the view that the Russians, indirectly, may have had a hand in it, indicating the MP was, in a sense, ambushed with a line of coke. However ludicrous this may sound, it turns out the Russians may have, indirectly, had a hand in it because The Guardian and The Mail allege that Warburton failed to declare a £150,000 loan from London-based Russian businessman Roman Zhayakovsky. But it must have been quite an elaborate sting operation, lending him the money in 2017, and then waiting patiently for him to have a midlife crisis in 2022. <laughs> then use £160 to buy two grams of Charlie and get coked off his tits before stripping off and grinding his naked body against a drunk woman who wanted him to go home. According to the papers, at least. The 56-year-old MP had had a previously uncontroversial career in politics since he was elected in 2015, only coming onto the radar of woke leftist killjoys when he tweeted a response to food bank comedy-loving MP Ben Bradbury in September 2020. Warburton tweeted... I've had to sign up to the Valuing Everybody re-education course, as not signing up is apparently a clear marker that I don't value people and require third-party intervention. This is insane, and like at bbrabbery underscore mans, I'll also go no further down this rabbit hole. Imagine what you'd find at the bottom of that rabbit hole. Some kind of woke wonderland where Warburton wanders Westminster, asking colleagues for consent to be kissed, where he gets dressed and calls a cab home to his wife and kids at the end of a cocaine bender in a drunk woman's flat. Imagine valuing everyone. It sounds like the sort of thing Jesus would come out with. It was all too much for Warburton, and he went mad checking himself into a mental hospital to be treated for the shock and stress of being caught doing stuff that would get a poor person arrested. But in his defence, it's not as if he walked into a branch of NatWest with a sawn-off shotgun and forced staff to fill a sack with banknotes. DJ!
anthem from 1987 renegade Soundwave with cocaine sex turbo lust mix from the cs sex mixers 12 inch a track that was deemed controversial at the time but now seems quite conservative david warperton wasn't the only conservative mp in the news last month for being a naughty tory conservative mp for wakefield imran ahmed khan revealed all you need for a party is a bottle of gin, pornography and a 15-year-old boy. On the 11th of April, Ahmed Khan was found guilty at Suffolk Crown Court of assaulting a boy at a party in Staffordshire in January 2008, 11 years before he became an MP. Ahmed Khan's defence was that after plying the 15-year-old boy with gin and inviting him to a private party to watch pornography, he only lightly touched his arm to console him as he was confused about his sexuality. If, which I guess is plausible. If I were a 15-year-old boy drunk for the first time watching a video of studly men pushing their hard dicks into each other while a 34-year-old Tory groped me, I too would be confused. Tory MP for Gravesham, Adam Holloway, wrote a supporting statement on his behalf, just like he did for the convicted sex offender and self-described naughty Tory, Charlie Elphick. But Ahmed Khan's innocent underage porn party, with its underage alcohol abuse and its hands-on comforting from a man espousing the conservative values that make this country great, did not persuade the jury. We also heard from two other young men Ahmed Khan had tried to console in the past. Khan's argument was effectively that the cake had remained in its Tupperware box, but substituting the word penis for cake and the words Mr Khan's trousers for Tupperware box. Some Tories were utterly appalled and distraught. Conservative MP for Reigate, Crispin Blunt, issued, and then later retracted, a statement saying, I am utterly appalled and distraught at the dreadful miscarriage of justice that has befallen my friend and colleague Imran Ahmed Khan, MP for Wakefield since December 2019. His conviction today is nothing short of an international scandal. But the people I feel sorry for are the real victims of the criminal justice system. The working class paedophiles. Working class sex offenders don't have Tory MPs like Crispin Blunt or Adam Holloway to write character statements for them or write letters to judges on House of Commons headed stationery appealing for leniency. Whenever people tweet, it's like one rule for them and one rule for us. I always think of those poor working class nonces who have no one in the Tory party to stand up for them. If Ahmed Khan receives a custodial sentence of 12 or more months, he will automatically be disqualified from being an MP, prompting a by-election in his Wakefield constituency, which went Tory in 2019 for the first time since 1932. And the people of West Yorkshire will have to decide once again between a Labour candidate who has lost touch with the working class and a Conservative candidate, like Imran Ahmed Khan, who better embodies traditional West Yorkshire working class values.
Kaldım filler kafamda Akşamdan kalmış fuşta Çivi sökerdi çivi ama Tek forvet kalmış zulamda Hayrola aradım yokmuş Adem baba Bozdum yeminimi mecburen Yine bindim kestiğim dala Abla 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 Her daim rötarda marka Atma bari atma Yine tek ağacım kel sokakta Abla 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 Her daim rötarda marka Party music from La La La, performing Abla Dame Lazimolush from the album Be Shinete Baka, which is out on Le Disc Bongo Joe this Wednesday. La 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 from Istanbul in Turkey, and they describe their sound as a delightful dumpster dive of spaghetti western psychedelics and Anatolian funk. On the 13th of April, the first fines were doled out for lockdown parties at number 10. Boris was fined 50 quid, as was everyone's favourite Tory, Chancellor of the Exchequer, Rishi Sunak. It capped a rough couple of weeks for Dishy Rishi. He'd hoped to cement his popularity with the party and the public with a spring statement addressing the cost of living crisis he'd been briefed about by his ministerial aides. After watching an episode of Top Gear for tips on how to act like an ordinary bloke, he grabbed his Everlane hoodie for some poor-faced LARPing at the petrol pumps on the forecourt of his local Sainsbury's to visually illustrate what the average fellow would do with a temporary 5p cut in fuel duty. Faced with a dilemma, familiar to many Red Wall Conservative voters in the frozen north, Sunak was unable to decide which of his four cars would best represent his man-of-the-people credentials. 
His top of the range Lexus, too corporate. His top end Range Rover, too middle England. His BMW, too risky. He didn't want to get stopped and cuffed by the Met for driving an expensive car with a brand face. He eventually opted for a Kia Rio, a much smaller, cheaper car, more demonstrative of the everyman image his consultants had advised him would poll well with blue-collar conservative voters. Unfortunately, in one of those mishaps that could happen to any ordinary Joe at the public petrol dispensing station, it turned out this car wasn't his, and he was photographed filling the tank of a car belonging to a Sainsbury's employee. Hours later, in another hilarious gaffe, the man in charge of the country's money tried to buy a can of Coke from a shop, only to prove he doesn't know how to use a contactless card. As he held up his card to be scanned with the barcode reader, onlookers were left hoping he remembered how to charge it to his ministerial expense account so they could pay for it. We all mocked Boris for not paying for anything himself, but it's not as easy as it looks, is it? Millenari, a 
with Shaman, meaning Shaman, from their De La Crow album, released earlier this year on the excellent Pagans record label. But for me, all that rishy stuff was fluff, the sort of thing that can happen to anyone who has a chauffeur to deal with car stuff and ministerial aides to purchase his sugary drinks. My problem with Rishi Sunak is that his spring statement did absolutely nothing for the Red Wall Conservative voters in the frozen north, who quite soon will have to choose between eating, heating and being racist. Because despite Tory promises in the election, they won't be able to afford all three. In February, Ofgen announced a 54% increase in the energy price cap, effective from the 1st of April, driving up household gas and electricity bills by an average of £700 per year. But support in the spring statement was limited to a token £150 council tax rebate in April, followed by a £200 loan towards electricity in October that had been previously announced. 58% of listeners in South End on Sea might be confused by this. They might be thinking they voted to leave the EU not just to get a blue passport and a crown on their pint glass because they'd read an article in The Sun by Boris Johnson and Michael Gove in 2016 in which the pair pledged to cut VAT on household energy payments. It's now more than two years since the UK left the European Union and these Sun readers might be forgiven for wondering why this hasn't happened. Well, I can't answer that. Maybe Rishi and Boris haven't noticed, as utility bills for their rent-free flats above number 10 and 11 are chargeable to tax as a benefit in kind under the Income Tax on Earnings and Pensions Act 2003. And that charge is subject to a cap at 10% of their ministerial salaries, not including their pay as an MP. However, the shit munchers, like you and me, will see our energy bills rise by an average of £700 per household. There are 27.8 million households in the UK at 5%, that's £35 of extra VAT revenue for the government per household 
per year, or 973 million extra English pounds for the Treasury to put in a war chest for the next general election, when they can reduce income tax by 1% in 2024 to cheer up any Red Wall Conservative voters who survive the next two winters. Although, as fat on energy is 5% and fat on goods is 20%, forcing low-income families to spend a larger proportion of their income on energy bills could actually drive down tax revenue for the Exchequer. That could be one reason why, over in the EU, 20 countries have taken measures to reduce the strain on households. Spain imposed a windfall tax on energy suppliers, Italy and Portugal have halved sales tax on household energy bills, and the French have slapped a 4% cap on energy price increases, forcing EDF to take an 8.4 billion euro hit, which took a fifth of the company's market value overnight. Thankfully, here in the UK, the idea of poor families being able to cook hot meals for their children in the country with the fifth largest GDP in the world is abhorrent to the majority of voters. They can see it for what it is. Food communism. This place stinks of old wars, subservience, semi-final defeats, God and flags. Pulling your mask down for a fag, you're a musty relic, hiding behind that tatty sheet, shouting, screaming, getting pulled back by your mates, stamping on cans, raw neck in the sun, dog water on tap, what even are you? You've been had mate, the Italian job is on, sit down, shut up, call the bunnies, laugh at the foreigns, drink your tea, tell your kids everything is shit these days, wave your fucking flag, wave your fucking flag, wave your fucking flag! Feel powerful, feel proud, subjects or subjects, we used to be this, we used to be that, we want it back! But no one is jealous, no one cares, so wheel it out, break that emergency glass, parade forever, make it meaningless, bow down to that tatty flag! What does it mean? What does it mean? Wave your fucking flag! You still hate your fucking neighbour The clothes you wear are foreign anyway Expensive or cheap And your car is German And it's nice Good runner Decent mileage Reliable Through the town down the road are all inbred you said You know talk funny don't they Fucking weirdos Oh and that London eh Don't get me started What a shit all eh Hey, 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 hey You fucking broken Your head's gone Imagine some good old days you think existed We deserve better than this Blue blood still runs Red! Privilege won't save you! Eaton won't save you! People who speak Latin will not save you! That stupid blood will crumble! That silver spoon will be sold! You'll be forgotten! You're nothing to them! NOTHING! Stop falling for their bullshit! Throw those plastic chairs! Puff out your chest! Rule the fucking Tanya! Rule those foreign fucking waves! You can't even swim straight! Armbands on! You're getting dragged down! You're drowning in it all! Drowning in it all! That flag won't protect you forever! It'll sink! It looks warm! The colours are running! Wasn't even made here! It's all a lie! This isn't politics! You're just holding a flag! You're just a fucking pole! Wave your fucking flag! Wave your flag! Wave your flag! New from Benefits. That was Flag, from their Flag slash Empire double A-sided single, which comes out on the 3rd of June. Looks like the vinyl version is already sold out, but you can download the two tracks from the Benefits Bandcamp page. 
I wasn't the only one left unimpressed by Sunak's inadequate response to the cost of living crisis. The Resolution Foundation published a briefing note on the 24th of March, which can be found on the Commons Library website at parliament.uk, analysing the impact of his spring statement. Taking into account the Chancellor's measures, a typical working age household faces an income fall of 4%, or £1,100, in the 2022-2023 tax year. But the greatest falls will be felt by the poorest quarter, with an average income drop of 6%, driving a further 1.3 million people into absolute poverty, including 500,000 children, in the country with the fifth highest GDP in the world. Thank fuck there's been a global pandemic and a war in Ukraine. Otherwise people would be on the streets, protesting very quietly. Despite these convenient disasters, Sunak's personal popularity still polled lower than opposition leader Keir Starmer for the first time. That's the media benchmark for unpopularity. Sensing weakness, the enemies of Sunak began to brief against him, leaking information designed to damage the squeaky clean image of a man who had become implausibly popular for nothing more than giving away taxpayers' money to Covid fraudsters and mates of the cabinet. Although everyone thought that Sunak and his family were living in the flat above number 10, the leaks revealed that until October 2021, the Chancellor of the Exchequer of the UK held permanent residency in the United States, according to his green card and that the man in charge of taxing every working stiff in the UK is married to a woman who'd lived in the UK since 2015, but held non-domiciliary status, which allowed her to avoid paying UK income tax on her foreign earnings. Earnings reported to include £11.6 million from her Infosys dividends alone in the last year. Despite the fact that this was, and is, perfectly legal, she then decided she would pay UK tax on her overseas earnings after all. And then she moved out of the taxpayer-funded rent-free accommodation above number 10 that she occupied in a non-domiciliary way with husband Rishi, which is crazy as she'd done nothing wrong. Curiously, Sunak blamed Labour supporters for smearing him with all this truth. Boris Johnson's been called many unsavoury things. Last episode, I called him a lonely, dishevelled heap, looking like Vladimir Putin's discarded wank sock. But to my knowledge, Boris has never been called a Labour supporter. It went well, you didn't have to do it all yourself. Some friends came over and helped. I hand truck a friend with a van. And you're moving out again Remembering when you first came It's crazy, these streets are the same They looked different when they were strange And it always is weird to erase Every personal trace From a place you called home for a while And see all that you own in a pile A place that turned into a friend Return it to how it had been To become friends with whoever moved in Stick around, after all the boxes are down The fridge is empty, just one ice tray And you swept and mopped more today Than the entire time that you stayed It's a shame you now gotta leave The place is actually nice when it's clean 
It wasn't hard mopping the floor How come you never did that before? But now the van is there on the corner And you've done everything that you're gonna There's some pennies and dust on that shelf But the landlord can clean it herself You're not sure, but you're gonna claim The blinds were busted like that when you came session version by Jeffrey and Jack Lewis from the self-released City and Eastern Tape CD which came out in 2008. As an aside, the controversy surrounding Mrs Sunak prompted Health Secretary Sajid Javid to remember that he too had held non-domiciliary status for six years until 2012, even though he was born in Rochdale and grew up in Bristol. He claimed to have repatriated his assets paying 50% income tax thereby defeating the object of keeping this money to himself so it could not be used to fund the construction of hospitals. But let's get back to the party. The fines for Boris and Rishi reignited press interest in the witlessly dubbed Partygate affair. Minister for Finding a Brexit Benefit, Jacob Rees-Mogg, tried to dismiss public concerns as fluff and fundamentally trivial. And Foreign Secretary Liz Truss of the Apocalypse said that people should simply move on after the Prime Minister apologised. But it soon became clear that people would not move on from the government's utterly contemptible behaviour unless they did something even worse to distract them. Priti Patel had not been fined for attending lockdown parties at number 10. Her invitation obviously got lost in the post. So she was the one tasked with appeasing Conservative voters angry at Boris's birthday bash. On the 14th of April, she announced a new initiative to tackle the deadly trade of people smuggling across the channel by nationalising it and using taxpayers' money to smuggle people a further 4,500 miles to Rwanda in Central Africa. And this would not be for offshore processing, the model used by countries like Australia. The beauty of this scheme is that almost all successful applicants would be required to settle in Rwanda. Campaigners and legal experts have said the policy is obviously unlawful, unworkable and an extravagant waste of taxpayers' money and that it's unlikely to ever come into effect. And it's difficult to see how it meets the UK's legal obligations under the Refugee Convention of 1951. However, it's easy to see how it will cheer up racists in key red wall marginals. Patel defended the plan in a Times article on the 18th of March, writing that Rwanda ranks as one of the world's safest countries. It does have the 139th highest life expectancy in the world and is now 18 years without a genocide. To add a final flourish to her villainous master plan, 
The hotel in Kigali, in which the refugees will be stored, is currently occupied by orphans whose parents were murdered in that genocide. They will all be turfed out to accommodate our refugees. The Home Office has not confirmed whether Patel specifically asked for that building because she knew the orphans would be made homeless, or whether this is just a happy coincidence. Let's hope this Machiavellian scheme fares better than Patel's last cunning plan to order the Navy to turn small boats around and send them back to France. That was challenged by judicial review by the PCS Union, Care for Calais, Channel Rescue and Freedom from Torture, and a three-day hearing was scheduled for the 3rd of May. The Home Office withdrew the plan on the 25th of April. Weirdly, many of the right-wing conspiracy nuts I follow on Twitter, who sincerely believe mask-wearing in Lidl is like living in Nazi Germany, did not tweet that sending refugees to Rwanda is like living in Nazi Germany. Even though the Nazi German government proposed to forcibly relocate the Jewish population of Europe to the island of Madagascar. The Good Ones with The Farmer from the Rwanda You Should Be Loved album, released on Anti Records in 2019. 
The good ones are Adrian Kazagira, Shavan Mahoro, and Jean Vier Havagimana. Three farmers from Rwanda, and that's recorded at Adrian's farm where he hid to escape the genocide. The Archbishop of Canterbury, Justin Welby, used his Easter Day sermon to criticise the Home Secretary's plan to nationalise people trafficking, saying it contradicted Christian values and would not stand the judgement of God. But nimby numpty Pretty Patel was having none of this from the old vicar, and on the 8th of April she hit back at Welby for failing to offer his own solutions to the so-called migrant crisis. This, for some reason, reminded me of when Jacob Rees-Mogg, Minister of State for Brexit Opportunities, wrote an open letter to Sun readers in February of this year, asking them to send him a list of Brexit opportunities, thereby doing his very difficult job for him. Maybe Patel could also write an open letter to Sun readers, asking them how best to clear the asylum decision-making backlog that has accumulated under her three-year reign of terror at the Home Office. Perhaps Patel could be authorised to use more extreme bullying techniques to incentivise staff. Or maybe we could drive all the refugees back into the sea, or house them in giant floating prisons, or drop them screaming into the mouth of an active volcano. As far as I'm aware, only one of those ideas has not been seriously considered by the Home Secretary. On the 19th of April, Patel defended her villainous master plan in the Commons, taking questions in a bad-tempered parliamentary session. She was in a combative mood with leftists, who insisted on raising issues with the legality of the scheme and asking how much it would cost. She countered these questions by pretending to hear them as a slur against the welcoming and friendly Rwandan people. She then took the moral high ground by implying her opponent's self-evidently reasonable questions were rooted in deep-seated prejudice against the African nation. This thread was soon picked up by her followers on the Twitter. Lucy Allen, MP, tweeted, Rwanda is a lovely welcoming country. Please can the left stop trashing Rwanda. Fidel Mabak went one step further with, Rwanda is not the hell home the left are, in a rather racist way, suggesting, probably safer than France. Maya Tusi dispensed with subtlety altogether. It's ironically hilarious how the left are opposing the Rwanda plan by insulting Rwanda as a safe country. Erm, dot dot dot, maybe try and not be xenophobic against the whole nation if you don't like a policy. Not all African countries are the same, you racist socialists. But then, Energy Minister Greg Hans told Times Radio that sending migrants to Rwanda would be a, quote, significant deterrent to people attempting to cross the channel in small boats. Which didn't really make sense. It wasn't the most senseless endorsement of the plan. That came from my own MP, the ever-reliable Tom Hunt, who had his own thoughts. I've long felt that offshore processing is the only way to, to truly tackle this, this issue. This is obviously offshore processing um, to stay in Rwanda, um, not to come here. To, to, to stay in a safe European country, Rwanda. But what I don't understand, if Rwanda is, to quote the government, one of the fastest growing economies in Africa, recognised globally for its record on welcoming and integrating migrants, wouldn't this, if anything, create an incentive for economic migrants to cross the channel to the UK? They could save themselves the cost of a one-way flight to Kigali and stay in a fancy hotel once the orphans have been kicked out. 
In fact, Patel makes Rwanda sound a whole lot better than ending up in post-Brexit Britain. A miserable failed state recognised globally as having a stagnant economy with a record of being so unwelcoming of migrants it ships them off to another continent unless they have the ruble equivalent of £2 million for a golden visa. Rosina Neva and Shimiyi Amana with Mwana Wumahanda, which means the child from the streets. Sorry about the pronunciation. That's from Why Did We Stop Growing Tall, released on Glitterbeat Records in 2017. It's an album of music recorded in a Twa village, not identified in the sleeve notes, but presumably in the Mazanzi district. The Twa are Rwanda's third and smallest ethnic group, making up 1% of the population. Roughly a third of them, at least 10,000 people, were killed during the genocide, and another third became refugees. After the opening of national parks for tourism, they were evicted from their ancestral hunting grounds, and Twa activists say that more than 90% of the community is now landless. Even though Rwanda's economy is one of Africa's fastest growing, most Twa live in abject poverty. But I want to be clear that on this show, there will be no criticism of Rwanda's record on human rights, rooted so obviously in the socialist racism that the right has fought so hard against throughout history. However, I would like to play devil's advocate for a minute and consider the plan from the Rwandan people's perspective. Let's take it as axiomatic that Rwanda is so welcoming and prosperous that not just asylum seekers and refugees, but also economic migrants will flock from France to the UK to get a free flight to Kigali. Number 10 said the Central African nation is recognised globally for its record on welcoming and integrating migrants. This is also true. In fact, it has already accommodated 130,000 refugees from multiple countries. This is unsurprising, as a vast majority of refugees, four out of five, stay in their region of displacement and are hosted by developing countries. But this is where I have a problem. Enter refugee into the search field in Twitter 
and you'll come across many British people who are clearly not racist, but who do not want to take any more refugees because they were here first and Britain is now too full. All these people want is room to live. According to UNHR statistics, as of mid-2021, there were 135,912 refugees in the UK. So we already host roughly the same amount of refugees as Rwanda. But Rwanda is one of the smallest countries in Africa and the most densely populated. It has a population of around 12.6 million, living on 26,338 square kilometres of land. This makes it the fifth most densely populated country of over 10,000 square kilometres in the world. The UK, by contrast, is over nine times larger by area and has only 55% of the population density. We have loads more room, we're much more thinly spread out, and yet we've accepted the same number of refugees. Surely these non-racists in the UK who have legitimate concerns about the impact of migrant numbers on housing and services, should be offering to take some of Rwanda's refugees. Ya 
Sophie and Zaisenga with Yambo, meaning royal cows, from the Queen of Inanga, music from Rwanda, released in January 2021 on Antonovka Records based in Moldova. Sophie is apparently one of the most famous contemporary Inanga players in Rwanda, and that was recorded at Mountain View Apartments, Rahango District in Kigali in October 2018. Now, like many people with Ukraine flags on their Twitter profile, I don't have a problem with sending refugees 4,500 miles away to Rwanda. But I am worried about the cost. We're giving the Rwandan government £120 million to set the scheme up, but this doesn't cover transporting a single refugee. Patel refused to be drawn on how much the scheme would cost per person. A similar scheme set up by Australia cost £461 million to process 239 offshore asylum claims. 4,600 people have arrived in the UK since the beginning of January this year. So at that rate, we would have spent £9 billion in four months. Some estimates in the press have costed the scheme at £1.4 trillion. With fuel bills rising, national insurance hikes and food inflation, my biggest concern is for the Red Wall Conservative voters in the frozen north who will soon have to choose between sending these economic migrants on an all-expenses-paid trip to live in Africa or funding NHS services in the frozen north to treat their rickets and malnutrition.
from Japan, Melt Banana, with Shield for Your Eyes, A Beast in the Well on Your Hand, from their Cellscape album, released in 2003. Like Senyawa, Melt Banana also played Colchester Arts Centre last month as part of a great month of programming at the region's best venue. Now I'm often accused of anti-conservative bias. No, it's true. I was quite critical of former Conservative MP Imran Ahmed Khan earlier for sexually abusing an underage boy. But what I didn't talk about were his achievements as a parliamentarian. He was a prominent campaigner for Brexit and by winning his seat in 2019 and voting with the government on the withdrawal agreement, he was one of a number of sex offenders who helped get Brexit done. And in 2020, Khan was part of the parliamentary panel on child sexual exploitation and peer-reviewed a Home Office research paper entitled Group-Based Child Sexual Exploitation Characteristics of Offending. Hey, what you can't afford to fuck about it? Bring in an expert! Yes, the extreme alternative comedy satire of 1987 is now a working model of government. Alas, Amir Khan resigned as an MP on the 30th of April, taking his child-grooming expertise with him. And I'm sure there were concerns about the difficulty of recruiting a replacement with specialist insight into sexual offending. But fortunately, the Independent Complaints and Grievance Scheme now has a list of 56 MPs, including three cabinet ministers, facing 70 allegations of sexual misconduct. So it seems there's no shortage of experts. I was relieved to see two members of Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet are also on the list as well, hopefully replacing Corbynite sympathisers who would have alienated voters with their obsession with free broadband, correct use of preferred pronouns and properly funding the NHS. There are 650 constituencies electing MPs to represent their interests and concerns in the House of Commons. That means one in 12 MPs is an alleged sex pest. And that's just in the workplace. God knows what they get up to on the outside. Thank you. 
German psychedelic band Sand with May Rain from their Golem album released in 1974. Sand were formed in Bodenwerda in Lower Saxony and only released one album while they were together. Rotor Relief put out four albums of previously unreleased material between 2011 and 2015 and in 2020 the band reformed to celebrate its 50th anniversary with a new album. That's the DJ stuff out of the way. But you might ask, what is causing this explosion of sexual debauchery in the House of Commons? As with most things that have gone wrong in this country after 12 years of Conservative government, it turned out to be Labour's fault. The Mail broke a so-called story, quoting an unnamed Tory MP, that Boris Johnson's poor performance at PMQs was the result of Labour Deputy Angela Rayner crossing and uncrossing her legs in a sexually suggestive manner like Sharon Stone in the terrible film Basic Instinct. The unnamed MP, my money's on upskirting champion Christopher Chope, said Boris was, quotes, barely able to function at the sight of Angela Rayner's legs, which may go some way to explaining why we have the highest COVID death toll in Europe. On a lighter note, West Country farmer and porn user Neil Parrish came clean this month and admitted to being a Conservative MP. The MP for Tiverton and Honiton resigned his seat on the 30th of April after a Conservative colleague complained that he was watching porn while waiting to vote in the Commons. Parrish claimed he accidentally came across the pornography while searching for images of tractors to masturbate over. Devon County Councillor Colin Slade was sympathetic he told the Telegraph this was a common mistake and that he knew the exact type of farm vehicle Parrish was googling at the time of the unfortunate incident. As a result of the mix-up, JCB is planning to recall their most popular model, the Asian Babes 3000. And on that note, I'll quit while I'm ahead and bid you good night. Join me again in four weeks' time on Shipful of Bombs for another depressing instalment of the Antigen Internet Radio Show.